0: Right, good evening uh, everyone. Many thanks for coming on this rather cold and wintry night. Uh, my name is Tony Dodge and if you follow my example and turn off your mobile phone, I won't shout at you later. Um, uh, I'm the director of the East Center here and a professor of the International Relations Department. But much more importantly, it's Christine Smith-DeLaan that we're here to, uh, to, um, to hear speak. She's an adjunct assistant professor of comparative and regional studies at the American University of American University School of International Service. But more importantly, before I met her in person, I read a chapter that she had written in this book, Sectarian Politics in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf. And it's uh, Royal Factions, Ruling Strategies and Sectarianism in Bahrain, which for my mind was the best piece I'd read on the post um, Arab Spring Gulf. So I sent her a uh complimentary email and asked for the so I could send it to all my friends. I it was a, it's a superb, really nuanced, I think very balanced piece. And on that basis, we've invited right to speak to you soon, because we always want to deliver the best on the uh, School of Government Public centre. And without further ado, take it away. Thank you, Excuse for having me. Oh, it's out fast, I think 30, please. 30 minutes <laughs> with questions afterwards. Thank you. Thank you.
1: The of unrest, which began in February 2011 as part of the broader Arab uprisings at that moment this year. The holding of elections had been seen by some in Bahrain and definitely by many in the international community as an opportunity for reconciliation um, to begin to heal Bahrain's considerable social and political divisions um, and to place Bahrain on a more sustainable path. Um, in September, the Crown Prince Salman bin Mohammed al uh, Khalifa. Announced the results of an ongoing uh, dialogue with the opposition, um, which was a framework to consider reform in five areas of common ground, to include parliamentary and judiciary reforms. Um, however, these promises fell considerably short, I think it's fair to say, of opposition demands and expectations, which really centered on more significant power sharing uh, within Bahrain, and also with the uh, focus, of course, on the release of political prisoners as well. Uh, Then in October, the government abruptly announced uh, or uh, produced a royal order for the revision of electoral districts uh, that would be implemented before the election. And this revision of districts, this redistricting, was actually meant to meet an an opposition demand to address the blatantly unequal representation that existed up until that time. Um, However, the opposition was not very happy with the fact that this was done unilaterally and without any consultation acknowledged that this was coming, and in addition to their other uh, sort of concerns that their main issues were not being addressed, they uh, decided and announced that they would be boycotting the elections um, in October of that year. So this rejection of of participation by the opposition, or the failure of inclusion by the government, um, has been, I think it's fair to say, hotly debated, both within the opposition and in broader society. Bahrain. Uh, the consequences of that decision uh, were pretty much immediately felt uh, within uh, a month or so. The leader of the main uh, opposition, the Shia Islamist opposition, Ali the uh, Secretary General Sheikh Ali Saban, uh, was arrested um, in connection with the speech that he gave, That this came following after his uh, re-election as basically Secretary General, and as well, many people saw it as sort of uh, punishment as well, or some. Results from the decision to, to boycott the elections, and for all we've got, continuing to put him forward as their leadership. So, this is sort of the context that we, um, the, the background uh, leading to the boycott. Um, but to think about sort of the significance of it and what it means for the future of Bahraini politics and what the election and its results mean for the future of Bahraini politics, I think it's useful to um, take a step back. Broader look and think a little bit about first the the regional context and then the local context. Um, And when we look at the regional context, it really couldn't be much more dire. The situation is really um, quite challenging in the Gulf region. Um, All of you know about these these major issues Uh, the tremendous security and humanitarian crises posed by the conflict in Syria and Iraq. Instability that's producing uh, throughout the region. Of course, now the geopolitical and ideological test posed by the emergence of the Islamic State. Um, And we can add to that now the new kind of re-emergence of this really strong uh, new sort of reincarnation of uh, a war on terror with the United States, uh, building a new coalition uh, to confront, um, of course, the Islamic State within the Gulf. And uh, now growing concerns too, about um, Islamists in, in the West after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in, in Paris, which are sure to have ramifications uh, across the West in their dealings with the region. If that weren't enough, kind of to manage, we have of course the collapsible prices, <laughs> historic oil prices, um, which have fallen by I believe almost fifty percent, more than fifty percent from their high in June. Which uh, it's a bit. Hard to predict what um, the full impact of that will be. Um, of course, this follow-all prices is actually being uh, sort of a decision in a way to bring down uh, supply by the both states. Um, so Saudi Arabia and the other equal states really view that they have the reserves to manage this. But this will definitely put uh, much more strain on Bahrain and increase an already dependent relationship uh, on Saudi Arabia. Um, and it's yet to be seen really how, how this is going to be working and the political consequences all of that. So this is sort of the, the broad global context. If we look at the local context, um, and the reason i want to do this and kind of open things up and the reason why um, I decided to bring Kuwait into the picture is I wanted to think about these elections not just in terms of Bahrain, but to think about really some deeper political trends of political governance that have emerged in the Gulf states uh, since the Arab uprisings and since this new challenge um, to, to the leadership in the Gulf. And I thought then it would be interesting to leverage the experience of Kuwait as the Gulf's other parliamentary monarchy. Um, and indeed, these are, of course, the two states that have the, the deepest history of a civil society, of, of different forms of activism, of political development within the Gulf. Um, and this means that they can really offer, for one, just an interesting window into politics uh, in the region, a little bit more transparent uh, because of the elections and the things that take place there. Um, and you can see the kind of political and uh, ideological formations that, that are definitely present in other states as well. They also provide, then, being the two states that have kind of the, the um, like I said, most active society race political development. Um, good states to look at for the measure of the fate of sort of democratic transition, should we say that, as it stands um, several years since the uprisings and the demands that we'll put forth with that. So so what I want to do then is to kind of paint a picture of political development in these states leading up to uh, kind of this rise of mass politics, and then thinking about how governance within these states, how um, ruling families of governments have really been uh, adapting to this new environment. Um, so if you'll stay with me, let me going provide you in further context and kind of thinking about where things are going. tremendous economic growth this was the period of of this oil boom, tremendous resources flowing into these states, um, lots of investment going on in the states, that there was a perception amongst much of the population um, that there had been sort of a a narrowing of the economic elite. Um, And this is happening through a lot of countries of course um, in this period. Um, And it's kind of characterized by the expansion of a lot of new mega-infrastructure projects, luxury developments, all of these sorts of things taking place, particularly in Bahrain, alongside um, in Bahrain and in Kuwait and many of the Gulf states, uh, perception of a deterioration in in public services. This was obviously much more readily visible in Bahrain with the really radical transformation, the coastline that's been taking place through prodigious projects of land uh, reclamation. And if you haven't already, I, I highly recommend you Was written by Hisham uh, Shahabi, which you can find in the least critique, which really is one of the best papers I've read. If you're going to read my paper, I Mm recommend that you read Hisham's paper. Um, Omar Shahabi, what am I saying? Who who, uh, really uh, looks at this transformation in in a deep fashion, both in in the geography of, of Bahrain. And also in the demography of Bahrain and the implications of that for uh, the country. And I'm sorry, it's get that wrong. It's a little bit less visible bil- and quite the kind of transformation that took place, but it's very present in the political rhetoric in the state. And if you look at um, kind of the, the politics within the parliament, where increasingly uh, parliamentarians turn from the kind of more conflict between liberals and Islamists to um, trying to get much more uh, leverage on, on uh, uh, basically uh, observing and, and trying to um, limit the uh, corruption that's taking place through these projects. And a new really strong rhetoric that emerged uh, complaining about the emergence of a ruling uh, ol- oligarchy so uh, quite naturally this concern that I think was present among a uh, well, wide swath of the middle class was brought into these elected parliaments and so you can see in 2010 in Bahrain um, a parliamentary investigation of public lands that was undertaken uh, quite interestingly which was done by both the Shia Islamist Pahk and the Sunni al which is the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, Bahrain and Kuwait you can see uh, much more intensive legislative oversight of state micro-projects, which broadly led to actually their obstruction uh, in Kuwait, and really the priority then turning within the parliaments to um, attention to this decline that, that was felt in public services, especially the housing shortage, in addition to public health services, and environmental degradation that was felt in both countries. So what i want going to argue is that this, this situation this more kind of challenging parliament that emerged. And a, more, um, in a parliament in Kuwait which has of powers uh, made it much more difficult to contain the opposition through normal parliamentary procedures. And so we see some changes taking place in Kuwait, um, changing the rules on uh, political interpolations of ministers to make it more difficult to do that, to take it through constitutional courts, um, through the withdrawals and cases of parliamentary immunity of parliamentarians challenging the government, and then later, um, of course, the unilateral changes in the electoral rules, which were um, perceived and and would severely limit coalition building um, critical to opposition's uh, political hopes in the country. On the other hand, when we look at Bahrain, I would argue that the weaker parliament there, the weaker, and I mean, what I mean by weaker, I mean the the tools that the parliament has to actually uh, challenge or constrain the government politics, or the executive, Uh, and then made it harder for the opposition, which at the time was was participating in the parliament, old block, to contain external opposition (laughs) outside of the parliament. Um, And this was because, of course, they were were not able in in any really meaningful way to achieve uh, meaningful oversight, Uh, and both parliamentary and municipal councils Really lacked control over the really big decisions that were being made in transforming transforming the country inside of Bahrain. So, while I would argue that both of these dynamics, um, both of the like the more feisty, I guess, parliament uh, in Kuwait and this powered parliament, which brought on a lot of more limitations on their their actions, and Bahrain, this and weaker parliament, enabled to do something, um, both of these together, led with frustration with the status quo, and in both cases then contributed to the rise of extra parliamentary mass politics, as people felt that they were not getting things done through the parliament. Um, and these were very, youth movements were very important uh, in this dynamic, uh, moving politics out beyond, uh, beyond the parliament. was coming from, um, really due to sort of the political history of these countries, um, a lot of the more vociferous opposition was coming from groups that were left out of the early sort of political bargains, the bargains that um, contributed or or allowed people to gain capital in the early periods, which then they could develop and and play, basically partake in these kind of broader economic developments in the country. So they were the people that were more dependent um, on the government. And... So in the case of uh Guhaid, we're talking about uh, the more late-arriving tribes. Um, and in Bahrain, we're talking more about the indigenous Shia um, And what I want to do now, then, um, in trying to analyze what the government response was to, to this now rise of mass politics, which of course then gets uh, this happened, this was starting, I would argue, before 2011. But got obviously, a huge boost by the uprisings that were taking place then um, in Tunisia and in, in Egypt. And what I want to do, really, is to draw very much on a colleague of mine, um, Steve Heidemann, to understand how just going to be coming to speak here. <laughs> so he told me to check it out. I said, I'll do better than that for you. I'm mean, going to give you a really big plug for your work because I'm going be using your frame and, and thinking about these things. So uh, Stephen, who uh, teaches classes at Georgetown and also is at the U.S. Institute for Peace, and has been doing a lot of research on or thinking about authoritarian government, uh, governance and um, thinking about new, new forms of authoritarian governance in this period. Um, I think a lot of his work is really built off of looking at Egypt and, and Syria. But um, I find some of his ideas useful. I think they're a rather imperfect kind of applications to these little states that we're discussing today. Um, and I'd like to have, you know, to have questions where we can kind of think through this in the question and answer period. But I think they do provoke a lot of, of thinking about where, where things are going. So let me just sort of, sort of summarize what his argument is. So um, really what he's saying is that this rise of mass politics um, forced elites within these countries to change their perception about the nature of the threats, the political threat that they were facing. And they realized that they were going to have to do some significant changes to ensure their survival. And the kind of actions that they've taken, these sort of new modes of governance, uh, Steve Heideman has um, termed these to be repressive, exclusionary modes of governance. So let me take the two parts of these in, in turn, because it's very important to look at them and to look at how they, they interact. So on the exclusionary part, the idea here is that, uh, increasingly, the governments in their capacity will try and attempt to channel opposition demands, which uh, still in this period were very much for issues of economic inclusion, voice, distributed justice, um, to channel them much more into identity politics. And into these new sort of um, Emerging, and this is also very informed by things that were going on in the region, and if we start to think about what happened in Syria, definitely what was happening to Iraq, new patterns of the uh, xenophobic, sectarian, or tribal conceptions of state and society belonging. And the real idea here is to, in some way, highlight the otherness or the externality of the opposition from the broader national um, and you can see where this is going um, in the states that are looking at. And Bahrain obviously, um, this took place a lot the top of the talk of the affiliation of Iran, the entry of Iran, trying to link, definitely, the opposition to all the stands with Iran, kind of externalizing them. And in Kuwait, um, it's a little more subtle, but it works very much in gaining this increasing division that had opened up uh, within society and within politics and culture, indeed, Between sort of the Hadar settled communities and the late arriving uh, tribes that were more dependent on the uh, government. Um, And to some degree later as well, questioning the loyalty as well of the Muslim Brotherhood as a transnational group that um, was also a very major part of the opposition in Kuwait. So, this is the exclusionary part. The repressive part of it. um, is really looking at um, a reinvigorated internal security in these states. But um, the application of this new security in ways that are, I guess I would term it politically productive. Let me explain, because they kind of work together. So what's one example of uh, the application of security in a way that's politically productive? Uh, one way to look at it is in the uh, geographical dimensions, right? So. Um, Initially, in the early days of the uprising, we had uh, protesters, of course, um, occupying and taking place in the central location of the uh, Pearl Roundabout. So, the um, decision by the government to, to clear out this roundabout and to drive protesters from the center, and then later, of course, banning uh, protests altogether in the capital and, and Manama, um, ultimately pushed a lot of the protests back. To Shia villages where they're still pretty much contained um, to this day. And in doing that, basically, push the protests into these villages where they then become kind of visibly <laughs> Shia protests. And I would say, even over time, substantively, the protests became and the protesters started to uh, draw upon kind of more um, Shia kind of themes and stuff in the, in the protests and, um, um, and nativist kind of. to police and prohibit the gathering, uh, around to lots of gatherings that were um, organized through social media. Um, we the gathering points until eventually these protests also were pressed out into the outer districts of Kuwait. I remember attending one there, which was taking place completely out um, in the 5th uh, district, kind of the outer districts of Kuwait, um, <coughs> and kind of highlighting the complex that took place to the police again sort of illustrate and make very concrete the sort of tribal elements of the opposition. A second um, illustration of this kind of uh, um, reinvigorated to security and used in strategic ways, of course, was uh, in a very explicit way, is the withdrawal citizenship from opposition. Um, this is really kind of the ultimate illustration, right? Of this, of when you're actually being excluded from the national This happened both, both in Ukraine and also recently in Kuwait um, around the people reactive in the opposition. And I should mention that this is also a very serious uh, deterrent, um, especially in a country, I mean in both countries. I mean, not only just for, for membership, but uh, for the economic rights of citizenship, which are substantial. And withdrawing this from somebody um, doesn't affect them, even just that individual, but also their entire family has a very strong, uh, very powerful, very strong return effect. Um, so these are just sort of some examples of kind of the working, of uh, exclusionary modes of governance. And one dynamic that emerges from this that I find kind of interesting, uh, once you kind of link these identity issues in with particular types of uh, uh, suppression or containment, and this is something else I had a conversation with precision is that and um, this in, in this kind of mode of, of governance then um, certain uh, efforts at suppression can actually be a form of legitimation which is interesting uh, because basically what that means is that when you're cracking down on one population uh, that seems as other that can actually increase your legitimacy with other parts of the, of the population. And in fact, we could see that in our with certain parts of the population actually demanding it more and more. Now, I've kind of taken all this time to build this idea, of this dynamic, um, because I think it's interesting then to consider the boycott within this new reality, of, the, of this emerging kind of shift in forms of government and dynamics. Um, if we look at the decisions of the boycott, or, or how it came about, the Bahrain opposition, um, of course, resigned. It had 18 of the 40, 40 parliamentarians um, on <coughs> the uprising. And at the height of the crackdown, um, they resigned their seats uh, in protest of the violence in the crackdown. Uh, the Kuwait opposition at one point held about the five seats, I believe. Uh, the parliament, that they lost their seats due to a court-imposed dissolution of uh, the 2012 parliament on a technicality, really. Um, And then shows a boycott in response, and this is important to the emirs, unilateral uh, change or reform of electoral laws, the ones that I mentioned before, that would seem to damage the chances of the opposition. So the decision was made, obviously, to uh, boycotts are complicated to make these decisions, um, to to try to force a compromise, to force political change, uh, maybe also just to reject sort of government diktat, right? Uh, of course that was the big rally trying quite by the SmackDak. We won't let you do this. <laughs> um, but if we think about it, a boycott, when it takes place under these conditions of like repressive exclusionary governance, um, a few things emerge. One, they're relatively or quite actually ineffective at um, really effectively suppressing turnout. And the reason for this is the same dynamic sort of that I described before, um, that by one group sort of um, um, choosing to sit out of the elections, other groups are mobilized to really participate in elections. And um, let me, before I get into this day, the state that, you know, uh, actually trying to look at turnout And uh, I think it's rather uncontroversial to say that uh, when you look at the, the elections that took place, the boycott elections in Kuwait, um, turnout was historically low in, in some of the outer constituencies, tribal areas, particularly where they moved to But it was historically high in some of the central Kuwait districts where there were more loyalist populations, particularly the Shia populations. In um, Bahrain, um, similarly, in this last election, um, turnout was was very low in the Shia villages and person understood. Um, but historically high in some other loyalist areas, really high. At least the numbers that came out and talk about this again were above like 85% in some areas in uh, and um, uh, Another problem with like, doing it with end of these conditions is that the elections and removing oneself from the elections also serves basically to reinforce the general message, right? That the opposition is acting outside of the national kind of community. Um, and in fact it's sort of removed from this embodiment of the national community, which is the parliament. Um, and of course the opposition is also weakened by 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 not having a say. Um, and this has then really apparent in Kuwait for instance. See passing along, where the government has been able to pass many things that are very much not the available would like things to go, but they don't, they can't have a voice of their requirements to do anything about it. Um, and obviously the potential is uh, based on the opposition um, is that the also being sort of outside of the main uh, politics, kind of more you know, formal politics, empowers security decisions and security policies. Um, and I would argue that this is another element of this more recent history in the Gulf is this new, um, you could almost call it like a policy of, of prosecution Moving beyond sort of ad hoc repression kind of here and there to getting a really serious sort of legal framework for containing um, opposition activities. And I think we're really there now. We've, we've gotten a much more mature sort of framework for this. If you look at uh, uh, amended terrorism laws and Bahrain, new mm-hmm. terrorism laws in Saudi Arabia. Much more aggressive enforcement in Kuwait of the Les Majest laws or the not uh, insulting the mirror. Uh, very vigorous now patrolling of media and social media. Just saw lots of those today. The most important papers. It's <coughs> going an interesting backstory right there. Um, and um, again, like sort of on the technicalities, um, a general idea um, that uh, more order needs to be and real strategies, legal strategies for, for achieving this. Uh, and this has really been a strategy as, I mean, you know, on Bahrain, a lot of people are in jail. I see a lot of opposition activists are in jail. And in Kuwait, we have a string of opposition activists, activists, I talk to them when I go to Kuwait, that constantly, I mean, it's like uh, having to deal piece with the court cases that are coming up all the time, constantly going in and out of the court. Um, this, there's been a shift I think generally in public opinion Um, exhaustion with ongoing protests or lawlessness, again that kind of language of a new law um, coming into things, and and quite frankly anxiety about the regional situation and what it means to have people in the streets when all of these things are going on and the sense of insecurity about what's happening in the regional states which gives I think a a lot more license to, to these kinds of policies but also, she mentioned that the creation of this new um, kind of legal frameworks and structures for dealing with uh, mass politics in the states uh, really does help these governments and their dealings with foreign governments, provides very much the sort of le- legal cover for a lot of what's happening. And you can see that, in fact, in the reaction of, uh, you did reaction, I would say, of the arrest of Ali uh, Salman. mean for future directions? Maybe before I talk about future directions, I'm just kind of in the face of Okay. Why don't we talk a little bit about the election? So I talked about the context of boycott, um, the kind of problematic nature of boycott within this new security um, framework or new modes of governance. Um, but let's look at the election. Um, Today, certainly, we can and really see that there's some. Difficult to reach, I think, from conclusions about uh, participation. Uh, This was obviously a really uh, big priority for the government to get uh, to show uh, turnout. Election posters, uh, um, even attacks of uh, fire—you know, burning with, with people already in those uh, districts, cars and taxi homes. So um, it's impossible to say something definite. <laughs> but as I said, I think it is clear that that there were very, I mean, was very uneven enthusiasm. I mean, that's clear. Uh, and that a lot of people did come out um, to vote in certain areas. And I think one thing to think about, think about what this new parliament might be able to achieve, is what this creates in terms of real variation and representative representativeness of Parliament historians. And if you do go by the numbers, I mean, in some of the districts where um, there was you know just like high participation or seemed to be a lot of enthusiasm, this in the heart other places. You'll have an MP who got four thousand votes. If you look in Dudos it's going to be representing a parliament by less than 250 votes. I don't know what that means in terms of representativeness in the parliament. Um, so that's one issue to sort of think about. Um, particularly if you're thinking about maybe um, a strategy of trying to use these new parliamentarians to kind of extend and kind of
0: bring more people into the parliament. Another
1: big outcome of the elections uh, that was apparent was the the overall weakening of political societies, obviously the opposition society should out of the parliament. So I would argue on a position where they're probably the maybe weakened, I don't see. Um, that definitely would happen to what we fought from outside the parliament. But even those who participate in the parliament um, in the elections, um, the existing political societies did really poorly in this election. And some people have looked at the districts, that Justin Gingler has a piece on this, and argue that the redistricting basically led to um, more direct confrontation uh, with a number of, like, Sunni-Islamist groups who were much less candidates. They, they had a bond, got only one seat. Uh, they didn't do that, they had people in the second round, but still they only got one seat. And uh, so that we had the two. Two and maybe a lot of more sort of that is it's not very clear. But definitely less than we had in the last election. <laughs> um, and more broadly, I mean, the people who were elected are, are new. There was also an anti-incumbency mood. I, mean, I think only 10 MPs are coming back from the last parliament. So it's going to be way out majority, like 75%, will be new MPs. And they're mostly pretty unknown. Um, uh, so a lot of new faces, um, not a lot of experience in the new parliament that's emerging. And uh, we can talk about exactly if that's a good sign or a bad sign. Clearly, the, the mood was uh, probably um, against uh, incumbency, against people. And a lot of, of significant people also didn't run in the elections. Um, I, I think kind of surprising looking at the campaign issues uh, it was interesting. I mean, I've described this really typical, challenging situation that Bahrain is going to be facing, the regional situation. Bahrain being in sort of a dependent position, they're going to have to leave. All of these challenges, they can't do a lot to, to impact these things. Um, worry about maybe the um, possibility of some sort of uh, Islamic State um, <coughs> infiltration within, within Bahrain or some appeal at least with some limited people. Um, obviously, the big issues of, of political reconciliation or where you take the country from where it is now, in addition to the crash and And campaign issues are really kind of small, or I mean, you can argue me if I'm wrong but I, I felt like really became focused on, on kind of service issues for their constituency, these kinds of questions, uh, very dramatic, pragmatic things. Um, and also, I mean, I think you didn't see a really strong element of a really strong ideology for those who were producing this kind of strong ideology. Everything sectarianism didn't do as well. I and mean, it might be interesting, I think it's too early to see that in the, the way that the new districts are set up, at least from my eyeball, and I've seen that they're kind of much more mixed districts as well, um, which is interesting. I mean, you might, you might question exactly if there is a strategy in that. We know we're in a situation now, <coughs> in a new regional situation, where really <coughs> strong sectarianism is a problem I and mean, we're trying to confront some, the trying to confront the Islamic state worrying about these things. Um, Is this sort of of a a goal or is this something that's trying to emerge out of that kind of question? Um, I think what we can say, though, is that um, the elections did point at least to to, to the degree we can say that to to some. I mean, they were successfully held, accepted, Um, so some kind of consolidation under this new more as exclusionary but at least for me and again I'm very interested to hear your impressions it feels like a very transitory time right now I mean there's just too many big things going on Um, the potential for um, dramatic shifts going on to to, to see um, draw really big big lessons from this Um, Mm -hmm. and it's certainly a time of great uncertainty Maybe I'll just
0: stop there and hope to get more conversations for questions. Thank you.